So, Jay, are Leprechauns a Marvel standby, or are they strictly an X-Book thing? Good question, Miles. While Leprechauns have made most of their appearances in X and X-adjacent stories, they actually predate mutants on the pages of Marvel's comics. Whoa. So, did the Fantastic Four fight them? Spider-Man? Remarkably, they have been around for longer than either of those. Although they did debut in the same series as Spider-Man. So amazing fantasy. Yes and no. The title actually changed to Amazing Fantasy with number 15. The issue where Spider-Man debuted. Exactly, and before that it was... Marvel Comics Presents... Amazing Adult Fantasy. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 318 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And to paraphrase the title of the old podcast of our first producer, welcome to this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, um... I am upset about leprechauns, but not for the reasons you'd think. Right. Uh, okay, I mean, I, this episode's gonna be a mess. I already know it is, and hopefully it'll be an entertaining mess. But here's the deal, listeners, our wonderful, lovely listeners. This is a Generation X arc that involves Cassidy Keep, you know, like the castle that Banshee is from. Uh, the one with the leprechauns. The one with the leprechauns. And this is an arc that features a whole bunch of fantasy creatures some of whom may or may not be those leprechauns, and it is ambiguous for the entire story, and Jay and I have been gradually losing our minds trying to figure out what the hell is going on in this arc. It's bad, y'all. It's real bad. I mean, there's... Like, we are, we are, we are slight... This is, this is our supervillain origin story. This is our slow slide into absolute disconnect from reality, by which I loosely mean X-Men continuity. Yeah, there, there's that. I mean, okay, we'll get to it. And, you know, some of the stuff in here is good. The first issue we'll be covering, I think, is a great issue. There are great things in the maybe Leprechaun, maybe not Leprechaun arc. But, wow, we are we are challenged by the work we have chosen this day, Jay. Who would have, whoever would have thought it would have been the Leprechauns that finally broke us? Like, I really figured it would be Onslaught. I know. I mean, I used to love the Leprechauns. Maybe I still do. I don't even know. So, I feel like we should maybe maybe discuss the Leprechauns briefly before we talk about Generation X, because we have we have talked about the Leprechauns of Cassidy Keep before on the show. In fact, in an episode titled "The Leprechauns of Cassidy Keep," it was a fairly early episode because the Leprechauns first made their appearance in Uncanny X Men number one hundred and three, way 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 back, immediately after the Phoenix Saga. Like it was Phoenix Saga Leprechauns. Yeah, there was a lot going on in Bronze Age X-Men. Like, a lot, a lot. Mostly, though, leprechauns. There's not really much to say about the leprechauns. Like, there are the families who hang out in Cassidy Keep, and they're leprechauns. And they seem pretty cool. And they get along really well with Eamon O'Donnell, the seneschal of Cassidy Keep, who's like a dude. I think we just summed up everything about the leprechauns. Well, I guess there was that one time that they told the readers for the first time what Wolverine's name was. Also, there are other X-Men. 
Uh, that's true. Yeah, that's where we all found out that Wolverine was named Logan. Thanks, Leprechauns. Yeah, they they were they were they were there. It was it was a pretty goofy story arc. It was clean. You know, they live in Cassidy Keep. They have for centuries been the responsibility of of the Cassidy family. Cassidy family protects them. They handle a lot of the day to day running of things at the Keep. And weirdly, in that capacity, the Leprechauns actually represent one of the more straightforward bits of Weird X-Men continuity. Is it weird that I find so much comfort in that fact? Well, I did find comfort in that fact until we got to this arc of Generation X. But now that we've established the Leprechaun's backstory, let's talk about the book that we're going to be discussing today and the team that's on it. Okay, right. So... After the original X-Men and the New Mutants, Generation X is the third set of mutant teenagers to be routinely put into danger while being theoretically educated. The team's headmaster and headmistress are Sean Cassidy, that's Banshee, formerly of the X-Men and Interpol, and Emma Frost, the White Queen, formerly of the villainous organization the Hellfire Club. So, aside from the headmaster and headmistress, who's in the class slash on the team? Well, quite a few people, actually. A couple of them we know from before the team was even formed. Right. The first among those is, of course, Jubilation Lee Jubilee. She's got firework powers, she talks a lot about how they did things back when she was on the X-Men, and she first hooked up with you know, Marvel's Merry Mutants back in their Australia days. We also have Cannonball's kid sister, Paige Guthrie. She is Husk. She has the awesomely gross power of ripping her skin off to have different various kinds of other superpowered skin underneath, and she also takes her job very seriously. I think she's pretty sure she's the leader of this team that definitely does not have a leader. Yep. That, that, that kind of sums her up well. More of the team, more members, were found when the villainous... Outer space techno-organic phalanx was making a habit of kidnapping young mutants. Who are these guys? Well, we had Angelo Espinoza, skin. He's got prehensile extra skin and prehensile extra attitude. Can attitudes be prehensile? I'm going to go ahead and say they can. Eh, I'll accept it. We've also got Everett Thomas, sync. He can synchronize his aura with other stuff. And he's a nice kid. And then there's Monet St. Croix, M. She's pretty much perfect, including all of the superpowers that I guess go along with perfection, like telepathy and super strength and super intelligence and flight and stuff. And she knows it. She also has a habit of occasionally doing childlike things and occasionally spacing out. At this point in continuity, she's anywhere between one and three people. We'll get to that. It's very complicated. One could almost say it represents an entire family of cold opens. Oh, I see what you did there, and and I'm glaring at you real hard. Once the school got started, a couple more teenagers showed up. We have Jonathan Starsmore, Chamber, and Chamber shoots psychic energy, and unfortunately he blew off his upper chest and the lower half of his face the first time his powers manifested. He's pretty gloomy and these days mostly communicates via telepathy by virtue of not having a mouth or vocal cords. Lastly, and not exactly a member of the class or the team, we have Penance. She's red, and sharp, and silent, and mysterious, and she just sort of showed up one day. She's, she's in the class at this point. She travels with them, so I'm going to say that she's, she's officially part of Generation X now. When we last left our heroes, a drunken husk had tried to kiss Chamber, who promptly got nervous and accidentally blew up the girl's dormitory. So... How do you kiss a guy with a continual psionic explosion where his lower jaw used to be? Like, I'm genuinely curious. Miles, 
you don't just have to kiss people on the mouth. I mean, she was leaning in toward his face, but maybe that was a fake out, and then she was going to go and, I don't know, kiss him on the nipple or something. I mean, I assumed that she was just going to kiss the area where his mouth would ordinarily have been, which was covered in a scarf. That's fair. I wonder what that feels like. Like, you see that he sort of has a chin shape underneath the scarf, but there's no chin under there. Is that just psionically constructed? I mean, it's the 90s, and psionic powers can basically do whatever, so... I guess? It's like the platonic ideal of a chin made manifest psychically under a scarf? Tingly! Yeah. Anyway, that takes us to Generation X number 7, Knights and Bolts. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Roger Cruz, inked by Mark Buckingham, colored by Steve Buccolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So how much covers have to do with the interior plot of comics varies wildly, and in this case... The Batalo-drawn cover, uh, which unfortunately is the only part of the issue that Batalo drew, refers to the best scene in the whole thing. Oh, and the cover itself is such a good representation of that scene. We see Skin and Sink holding up these power drills, and they have these overfull tool belts on, and Artie and Leech are in the background, pouring lemonade and hanging out with a random bunny because Chris Pacello just loves drawing random little animals. Every freaking page, or cover, that Pacello does is just gold, and I just want to get lost in it. It's just inordinately charming, and I really wish he'd drawn this arc, because I feel like he is the only artist who could have really pulled it off who was working in comics at this point. Scotty Young could have, but I, I don't know if, I mean, he was, he was, yes, he's older than us, so he was, he was definitely born by this point. But I, I don't know if he was, he was old enough to actually be drawing comic books. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Liefeld started pretty young. I know there's some other artists that started pretty young, too, so hard to say. Anyway, this issue starts by foreshadowing not this coming arc, but the next one, which is about Sean Cassidy's history with Omega Red. And the result of that opening is the vague, overlying implication that Omega Red is somehow responsible for the shit that goes down in this arc, which he is definitely not. Now I'm just imagining a bunch of stereotypical Lucky Charms leprechauns, but with mutant death factors and big creepy tentacles coming out of their arms. I feel like a story involving both Omega Red and leprechauns would be very X-Men. It really, really would. But what I want to talk about here is that since the dream uh, that Banshee's having that the issue opens with is a flashback, we get to see Banshee's amazing ponytail that he apparently had back when he was on Interpol and in what I can only assume was like the 60s. Do you think that he was hired to Interpol for that ponytail? Maybe. I mean, I think it's actually his ponytail that has the badge and the license. He's just there as a chauffeur for it. Makes sense to me. I do wish he kept his ponytail, though. I mean, he hung out with Forge a lot back in the day, and they could have been ponytail buddies. Maybe that was why he didn't keep it. Maybe it was out of respect for a new generation of leaders. Oh, okay, gotcha. Like, he didn't want to, you know, uh, steal Forge's ponytail thunder. Well, and he wanted to make space for, you know, new ponytail styles to come in, for, for people with to, to really establish and own their own ponytail signature looks. But I feel like Forge already had so much signature look going on. Do you remember those tiny, tiny shorts he used to wear? Banshee never wore shorts that tiny. At least, not outside of various extremely kinky scenes with Moira. Trying to remember now whether we've ever seen Banshee in tiny shorts. I bet we have. I bet we're going to in this series if we haven't. That's, that's very likely. Uh, anyway, let's get most of that stuff for now. Although I do appreciate that... Uh, 
Emma Frost, who is staying in Banshee's place since she gave her place up to the girls who lost their dormitory, gets really annoyed that Banshee is dreaming so loudly and uh, yells at him in his own dream. Yeah, I, that's got to be really frustrating for telepaths, because no matter how good your control is, I imagine there's there's a limit to how much you can prevent other people's dreams from seeping in. Is it something you have to kind of train yourself to do? or? Maybe, I don't know. I mean, we do know that Games Master, who's an omnipath, essentially became super evil because he was so mad at hearing everyone's thoughts all the time, so maybe it's kind of like that. In Game Master's defense, the majority of my thoughts suck. Like, most of what I think is inane and terrible and would not be interesting to an outsider, because, I mean, most first of all, most of it isn't even conscious, but most of it just is sort of the vagaries of... of moment-to-moment existence there's that yeah and like other stuff it's mostly stuff most people wouldn't care about like i'm about evenly split between feeling really guilty over minor stuff i did years ago and thinking a lot about how to use different sound formats to fix the audio delay on my soundbar which i finally did but still see i'm thinking in even more mundane terms like how much of your mind if you can hear everyone's thoughts is taken up with like constant litany of i think i kind of have to pee but not really enough to justify getting up yet This would explain why Emma Frost is so salty to everybody. Right? I feel like we're getting a little bit off track, and the important part is that we're getting closer to leprechauns. But let's talk about some of the other stuff in this non-leprechaun-related issue first. All right. um, We are going to skip the rest of the Omega Red stuff, the Omega Red foreshadowing. We're going to talk about that someday in the ambiguous future. Now... This issue is a pretty quiet issue. It's basically a status quo return, round-robin check-in as the kids catch their breath after all of the Gene Nation stuff that went down. Lobdell's sort of famous for his quiet issues. He does a lot of them, and he's certainly done some of my favorites. And yeah, I think honestly, that's probably where he most excels rather than, you know, leprechaun stories. Yeah, his plots kind of suck. He's much, much better at, at, at moments. I agree, yeah. And speaking of those moments, we do get Paige and Jonathan discussing the explosive results of that almost kiss. It's awkward. Arguably even more awkward than the almost kiss itself. Especially because the conversation ends with Jonathan storming off assuming that Paige is ashamed of having tried to kiss him. Instead of just being ashamed at having drunkenly come on to him. Yeah, I I gotta say, I'm really here for all this teen drama. Yes, it's all based on misunderstandings and immaturity, and that stuff is fun. That's part of why I liked New Mutants. That's part of why later on I liked New X-Men Academy X. Like, you have to have teen drama in a teen superhero book. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, this is, I mean, it's a character-driven title, or rather, it's, it's weird because it's a, a title that feels character-driven, that's character-centered, but the events in it are very much events that they just kind of get dragged through. This one, for instance. Now, meanwhile, before that event, um, Jubilee tries to take away Monet's book and discovers that it's a coloring book, at which point Monet storms off to hang out with Gateway. We're getting more and more clues that something is up with M, that she's not just the perfect, composed teenage girl that she portrays herself as. And essentially, because she's composed of two little girls merged together, pretending to be one teenaged girl, that's what keeps leaking out, hence all the childish stuff that we keep seeing. It's actually kind of sweet and kind of sad how she feels like she has to play off the fact that she has a coloring book as it being a memento from her past instead of the fact that she just likes coloring. She doesn't play it off that way. That is what other characters assume about it. Uh, True, true. She just doesn't contradict them. 
Finally, we have the scene that's referenced on the cover, and that is Sink and Skin building Artie and Leech a treehouse in the Danger Grotto. Artie and Leech are now with Generation X. They are questionably members of Generation X because they're still Moppet age, although they're drawn like teeny adults here, which is a little weird. Maybe it's like those old paintings of baby Jesus where he just looks like a tiny middle-aged man. Or 90% of the times baby Cable was drawn in X-Factor. Oh yeah, good point. Anyway, they are at least living with the team now. Um, The team picked them up during the Gene Nation stuff. They were being held hostage by Gene Nation so they could use Leech's power-canceling abilities. And I guess they live here now. They do. And... It's kind of weird that our favorite pink and green Moppets just randomly show up in this book, but I'm fine with it, in part because that means that Chris Pichello, when he comes back, will get to draw them some. Yeah. But this is the scene from the cover. This is Sink and Skin building a treehouse for these adorable children in Generation X's equivalent of the Danger Room. They're not supposed to, but come on, how can you say no to those little pink and green faces? Let's talk a little about Sink and Skin, because you mentioned that these books, where they really excel as character, and I find that the friendship between those two characters is a really fun one. I think it's hurt a little bit by the fact that Sink doesn't have a ton of personality at this point. That's sort of the thing with Everett, is his powers that he synchronizes with increasingly vague concepts, uh, his powers go off the rails almost immediately when he shows up. But that does mean that he's kind of a social chameleon. He gets along with everybody, and the main thing we know about him is that he's positive and confident. And so I agree, that's a character weakness in some senses, but it seems to be a deliberate one, and I kind of like what that pure positivity brings out in a cynical, world-weary character like Skin. Like I think here we see Skin at his best. He's complaining about having to hang out with children and to work a bunch, but it's clear he's having a really good time and finds it really rewarding. Well, he's also clearly one of those characters who enjoys complaining. That's a very fair thing, actually. Like, it's, 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 like, he obviously has complaint mode when he's actually upset about things, but he, like, friendly grumbling is clearly one of, one of his ways of interacting with the world. I had a coworker like that. Every time I just wanted to hear someone very entertainingly complain for, like, ten minutes straight about whatever was happening, I would just go visit her, you know, saying I needed to upgrade something on her computer. Yeah, so this is this is lovely. Um, now you asked who could say no to the adorable faces of Artie and Leech, and the answer to that would seem to be Emma Frost, who notably kicked one of those faces when we when she last saw them. Um, although in her defense, it was because Leech Leech being conscious was knocking out everyone's powers and basically making Generation X useless against Gene Nation, who were about to kill them. But she feels bad enough about it to confess to Banshee. I'm not sure how I feel about this. Like, I don't know that Emma would really feel all that guilty about kicking a child in the face if it was necessary for survival. But I do know that one of the things the book is doing is sort of working on softening her as a character and redeeming her after all all the horrible shit she did in the past. I think this is a version of Emma justified less by previous versions of Emma than by subsequent versions of Emma. This is an Emma consistent with the versions of her and with, with the arcs that we've seen written by Morrison, written by Whedon, written you know further and further on, where she is actively trying to do better. And it's consistent with what we've seen of her here so far in that she is really self-aware. That said, 
I think even if Emma would not normally balk at kicking children in the face, we're not just talking about any children. We are talking about the signature Moppets of the X line. Well, that's a really good point. Yeah. Like, as far as it being easy to kick a child in the face versus it being hard to kick a child in the face, like, if that's a spectrum right there, Artie and Leech are on the hardest, hardest side of that spectrum. Oh, unquestionably. And especially if they're drawn by Chris Pachala, which I believe Leech was at that point. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. This nice conversation, though, is shattered by an urgent call from across the pond because, according to some random old lady in Ireland, Cassidy Keep has just sort of vanished. Jubilee chimes in. Can you say road trip? And that, in fact, will be our next two issues. So, when I was in third grade, I had this classmate um, whose, whose family was, was really wealthy, and they were going to go on a bike, biking trip in France, and this kid was dead convinced that they were going to be riding bikes to France, and nothing any of the rest of us could say or show her could convince her otherwise. Okay, because Jubilee's talking about taking a road trip to Ireland, and thus... I, I guess so. I read a Piers Anthony book called Mercycle once uh, that was about this long-distance, underwater, science bike trip. Huh. But now that I think about it, it was actually mostly about sex with mermaids, so I guess what I'm saying is that it was a Piers Anthony book. Yeah, that sounds about right. That takes us to a book that Piers Anthony didn't write, Generation X, number eight, What Happens to Cassidy Keep? Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled once again by Roger Cruz, inked by Mark Buckingham and Al Milgram, colored by Steve Bucolato, and lettered by Comicraft. So here's a question that I'm now mulling over. Do you think Piers Anthony would have handled this better or worse? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I'll give Piers Anthony one thing. His books were coherent. Like, they made sense, and the continuity... Even though it started to loosen after book about 72 of Xanth, was generally pretty decent. So I'm going to go ahead and say better, but there would have been a number of squicky sexual situations that a 13-year-old reader wouldn't have been freaked out by, but adults would. Yeah, fair enough. But I mean, that's also something I kind of associate with Lobdell. Not, not quite as pervasively as Anthony. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point as well. And speaking of, in the last issue, man, there is so much cheesecake going on. Like, when Emma shows up in Banshee's dream, she is posing like a pinup model and wearing extremely skimpy underwear, and all the teenage female students are wearing giant shirts with tiny, tiny, tiny shorts underneath. I think it's probably okay. Like, there's always been a playful sexuality to this book that has been on the acceptable side of things, but it's definitely noticeable. Okay. I will defend the latter group of outfits you described because that was like default sleepwear loungewear for girls in the very early 90s. I guess that's a good point. Yeah, uh, I was still pretty young in the very early 90s, so I didn't really hang out with a lot of girls in loungewear situations. I mean, I was I was still generally kind of presenting as a girl in the early 90s, so this occasionally came up in my life. Like the the I Oh, you, you are underestimating, first of all, how oversized the default oversized t-shirts of the early 90s were. That's true, yeah. I definitely ha still have some t-shirts that I wore in the early 90s that are somehow still intact, and they're big on me now. Right, what you're describing, so what you're describing are basically loose, shortish dresses over tiny shorts. Okay, okay. Well, in that case, sure, that totally works. But Emma Frost is totally cheesecakey. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Anyway, Generation X number eight. The team has indeed made it to County Mayo in Ireland, and they're hanging out on the edge of this giant misty crater where Cassidy Keep used to be. And they're all in these sort of winter, cold weathery civilian outfits. I do appreciate that Jubilee is still wearing her yellow coat and Santa hat from the Christmas issue a couple issues ago. I like the idea that that's just her winter hat. I mean, that's legit, and honestly, she looks pretty good in it, so that's fine. Yeah, she pulls it off excellently. Black Air is also there. You remember Black Air from Excalibur. They're the new version of the Weird Happenings organization, but they're much less whimsical and militaristic and much more spy agency and stab you in the back in the dark. We even see Agent Skick Luna, who's one of Pete Wisdom's nemeses. Wow, I... I much less whimsical and militaristic is quite a phrase to hear all in one mouthful. But it's the Weird Happenings organization. They're totally both of those things. Yeah, their presence here is kind of gratuitous. They're not going to tie to the story at all, and they're really only going to appear in one sort of brief and kind of confusing cameo. If you've been reading Excalibur, you'll have a rough idea of who these guys are, kinda. But otherwise, they're just sort of randomly thrown in. Although that does bring me to a question I never thought I would ask, which is... Is mid-90s Generation X the new old Excalibur? Because Excalibur got really dark and serious under Warren Ellis, and Generation X is sort of silly and character-focused in a lot of ways. What I think, and I'm saying this entirely on speculation, is that 90s Generation X is what became the dumping ground for Scott Lobdell's unused Excalibur backup plots. You know, given that a lot of this feels like one of those mediocre Scott Lobdell Excalibur fill-in issues, that kind of makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, that's that's the thing. That that This really feels like that. Well, as they stand at the edge of the crater, Sink starts seeing visions of elves and knights and stuff in the mist because his mind has synced up with another world. I appreciate that this character has been around for seven issues plus a couple pages and his powers are already getting the kind of confusing power creep that it takes decades for most characters to get no he can sync up with anything anyone i i don't know man he's he's a useful tool for getting getting stories started i guess he very much is and i mean honestly ever since nightcrawler teleported into the astral plane in the age of apocalypse excalibur story like fuck it let's just go with it that was an alternate universe Still, still. When Sink touches the mist, he disappears, as does Chamber, who jumps after him, but not Skin, who jumps after him, because the mist only was teleporty briefly. And there's this great splash panel as the rest of Generation X dives into the crater wearing their totally normal winter civilian clothes. I gotta ask, though, so you just saw that the teleporty mist stopped working, and your solution is just to randomly jump into a giant hole because you don't have a better plan. Like, who are these people? James Sunderland from Silent Hill 2? The Leprechauns of Silent Hill. In my restless dreams, I see that town. Cassidy Keep. You promised you'd take me there again someday. But you never did. Well, I'm with the Leprechauns there now in our special place, waiting for you, waiting for you to come and see me, but you never do. And so I wait, wrapped in my cocoon of leprechauns. 
Okay, I thought it was going to be Scott Lobdell that broke me on this one, but no, it was you, Jay. It was you. You are my red devil. You are my pyramid head. You are my persecutor. I, I thought this whole island was our special place. Anyway, uh, very much not in Silent Hill, our heroes reappear on the other side in cloaks and gowns and tunics and medieval shit, because apparently there was still enough teleporty mist to take them to definitely not Silent Hill. So I assume that this stuff is, that this clothing is illusory. And I assume that for one specific reason, and that is that penance can wear it. That's a good point, because Penance cuts the crap out of everything she touches. Like, her skin is composed largely of sharp angles, so maybe it's that. Or maybe it's just that it's magic and therefore whatever. This is new territory for Generation X, despite their other adventures, as Banshee chides Jubilee, who's going on about, you know, the stuff she's done with the X-Men. For most of your fellow students, this is the first time they've been to another dimension. But not the last. Skin replies... Considering how, in our first semester, we've already been attacked by Emplate, nearly pureed by Penance, went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Orphan Maker, and mixed it up with Gene Nation, I'd like to think we're handling things quite well, muchas gracias. Skin works really well as an audience surrogate. I mean, okay, maybe not in the Generation X movie, but he totally does in the comic. He really does, yeah. However, there's not enough oxygen here, which will kind of be explained, and so everybody falls unconscious. It's time for a scene transition. While unconscious, the party is divided, and Banshee and Emma wake up chained up in a dungeon, as one does in, you know, other dimensions or sewers or whatever. Also chained up is Eamon O'Donnell. Well, maybe. Right, because, okay, Eamon O'Donnell was the seneschal of Cassidy Keep back in the 70s Leprechaun X-Men story. He was the guy that hung out at the Keep and talked to the Leprechauns a bunch and, I don't know, made sure the place was locked up at night or whatever, and he was just a dude. Yeah, notably, Eamon O'Donnell, the one we've seen in comics, the one who exists canonically, was human. Like, normal-sized human. Slightly short. I think. I mean, he's drawn a lot shorter in Uncanny number 103 than he was in number 101. It's a little ambiguous, more than I thought it was. But what he definitely was not was a two-foot-tall, strangely-proportioned, leprechaun-looking dude wearing rags. Like, later on, he talks about how humans are ridiculous. This Eamon O'Donnell is clearly not supposed to be human. This doesn't make sense. Plenty of humans also talk about how humans are ridiculous. I mean, I talk about how humans are ridiculous. I suppose that's true, but that's clearly not the intention. So, okay, here's the thing. I had remembered this arc, which I read like a million years ago, as being about the leprechauns of Cassidy Keep, but I don't think it is, or, or maybe it is. Maybe there are elves that are the same as the leprechauns, or maybe they're separate, and now Eamon O'Donnell is here, and he's maybe a leprechaun, and his family's here, but they're pink, and he's just like a Caucasian-looking dude. What? What the fuck is going on, Jay? So, I wonder if this was supposed to be related to or a spinoff from that one Siren backup story. Wait, the one where she was in that ghost castle that used to be Cassidy Keep? That was the only connection I could think of. I don't know. I mean, that story didn't make any sense and nobody's really referenced it, but there was actually a different backup story in Marvel Comics Presents number 43, because I went down a deep research hole as I gradually lost my mind about whether Eamon O'Donnell is actually a leprechaun. In Marvel Comics Presents number 43, which was also written by Scott Lobdell, actually, 
Siren answers the door as this Irish super team called the Kinsmen shows up looking for Banshee, and there's this big fight. And here's the thing about the Kinsmen. They're all ridiculous Irish stereotypes. Like, they make Alpha Flight look respectful. They are led by a character named Wee One, who is a leprechaun. But not like the leprechauns from Cassidy Keep. No, like fucking Lucky from Lucky Charms. He's this little dude in a green bowler with a clover and a green suit, and he punches people, and he's got pixie dust. And uh, there's also this guy named Boulder on the team, who's just some random dude that We One gave a magical boulder to after the dude saved We One from something. And during the fight, like the boulder rolls over uh we won and so so i guess he's dead so i guess siren gets his pot of gold and there was also this water nymph and her name was dyke and i don't think that's necessarily a great name to give a woman in a 1990 comic and oh oh god but the point is is Eamon o'donnell a leprechaun i don't know what was intended i don't know if this is scott lobdell having been completely confused by continuity the way that Fabian Nicieza was by Psylocke's backstory, or if he just didn't care, or if there was a disconnect between the writing and the art, or if everyone involved in this comic just specifically laid a trap for me to completely go off my gourd in 2020, an already terrible year, because I don't know if Eamon O'Donnell is a leprechaun. See, my theory about this comic is, again, first of all, the the, uh, recycled Excalibur backup story plot. But also, look, everything we know about Lobdell's approach to comics writing was that he just kind of did stuff. Remember, this is the architect of Onslaught. At least Onslaught made more sense. I know for a fact that Onslaught is not a leprechaun. Oh shit, is Onslaught a leprechaun? Honestly, I don't know who ele- who who is or isn't a leprechaun anymore. Like that's that's the point that I have come to with this arc. Like I have been left in this state of absolute existential uncertainty about leprechauns. Jay, are we leprechauns? I don't know, and I don't know how to tell. Oh God. I mean, I can only hope that someday some writer follows this arc up with some kind of explanation. So anyone, if you're a Marvel writer listening to this podcast, write some resolution to the Leprechaun arc. Tell us whether Eamon O'Donnell is a Leprechaun. I feel like we can figure everything else out from there. This this is really upsetting. Like, we have been texting escalatingly horrified and sweary text messages as we dive deeper and deeper into the continuity for like the last three days. This has consumed every waking thought. Oh, God. Okay, well, there are some other magical creatures going on here, and while they do make the plot more confusing, at least they don't make this part dig its daggers deeper into our hearts. So, we do meet a fairy woman named Grand Dame. Are you supposed to say Grand Dame? Okay, that sounds way cooler. Grand Dame, apparently she used to run this place, and she teleports in the rest of Generation X, aside from Emma and Sean. Wait, so she used to run Cassidy Keep? No, she used to run this other dimension they're in that Cassidy Keep has been teleported into for reasons I still don't understand. Sure. Part of what's confusing here, I think, is a writing art disconnect. So, Grand Dame has this bright pink skin. The elves that we're later going to run into also have bright pink skin. But fairies and elves are very different things, that's clear. Whether or not elves are also leprechauns, I don't know. I think maybe they're supposed to be. We'll get to that. 
anyway, Generation X are now wearing breathing masks, uh, like the same kind that some of the alien characters wore in Mass Effect 2 and 3, just the little clear ones. I guess that's part of Grandom's spell to make it so they don't continue falling unconscious from the lack of oxygen in this dimension. It's very unclear. Helpful, at least. It is helpful. So Grandam explains to them, this dimension that they're now in used to be beautiful and magical and naturey, but it's gotten all messed up since the glamour machine broke. Jay, what is the glamour machine? Big old building-sized machine that's where the sparkly magic comes from? I guess it is. Like, it's kind of a fun concept, the idea that this magical fairy dimension would be run by, like, a big, ugly, steampunk-looking monstrosity. But, yes, apparently it broke a few hundred years ago. That's part of why there's not much oxygen. Okay. And also, all the magical creatures are having a hard time. So, Grandam tells them, Kids, it is your destiny to fix this. Look at this magical ancient scroll that has pictures of you clearly fixing it. Well, we're going to learn later that... The lack of oxygen isn't a direct result of the glamour machine breaking, it's a result of the fact that the dragons have gained power because the glamour machine broke, and their combustion eats up the oxygen in the air. Okay, I didn't understand that part before. Thank you. This story now makes 1% more sense. Yeah, it's still nonsense. I do appreciate, though, that Skin quickly realizes that the scroll showing Gen X fixing the machine uh, is still cover in wet paint because Grandime clearly painted it right before they showed up to try to convince them. I appreciate that she's a bright pink magical con artist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's not the first one of those we've seen. I mean, I guess Gossamer wasn't bright pink. Uh, true, true. She was just pink tinted off white. Man, I haven't thought about Gossamer in a long time. Sorry. I don't know. Gossamer was kind of fun. I mean, she was horrible, but also kind of fun. Fair enough. I guess it's just my rose-colored glasses, though, looking back at the past. God, that was a bad joke even for me. I'm sorry, listeners. Despite realizing they're being conned, M suddenly goes mostly catatonic and wanders up to the machine and starts messing with it. This is very much like when she went unresponsive in New York City in Gen X number 5. So we've mentioned before that the M we're seeing here is not Monet. It's, in fact, her two younger twin sisters, doing the psychic equivalent of a kid standing on another, another kid's shoulder wearing an adult-sized trench coat. One of the twins is autistic, and when that twin sort of takes over, that's when M goes unresponsive. That also corresponds with when she starts doing very intellectually impressive things. So basically, from what I can tell, with that one of the twins, we're seeing the, the Rain Man stereotype, like the autistic savant trope going on. I don't know, is that how it seems to you? I think there are there are aspects of, at least in this context, what she does that, that ring reasonably valid, but I, I, I just, I really have problems with this, the whole concept and situation. That's fair. If nothing else, it's very confusing. Anyways, all this is going on, suddenly a cigar-chomping dragon bangs on the gate and is pretty pissed that someone's been messing with the glamour machine because, like you said, Jay, the dragons have been able to take over over the last few centuries because the glamour machine is messed up. Somehow. Yeah, this was definitely originally an Excalibur story. It really, really seems like one. Elsewhere in the same dimension, Sink and Chamber, who, remember, got there first, are wearing kilts and using medieval weapons to protect the aforementioned pink elves, and to clarify, these are more like Keebler than Rivendell-style elves from Dark Knights. I really like that distinction. That's that's a really good way to delineate that. 
<laughs> Thank you. But they're they're murdering so many dudes. Like, I assume these knights, if not human, are at least, like, living sentient beings. There's no mention of them being robots or whatever. And there's blood flying everywhere. And I think we at least see some severed limbs or heads at some point. Oh, skin definitely cuts off someone's head and there is definitely blood. Yeah, like, the dialogue tries to sort of fix it. At one point, Chamber says they should attack the knight's breath tubes since the oxygen in this dimension is low. But... A, Skin and Sink aren't wearing masks themselves and are exerting themselves, so apparently it's not that low. And B, even in the panel that mentions breath tubes, there's just blood flying out of a dude's face who's getting smacked with one of their morning stars. I mean, a, tr a trachea is technically a breath tube. I, I suppose that's true. It's just kind of weird. I don't know, it's like in the uh, third Arkham video game, where Batman, who we assure you doesn't kill anybody, just runs everyone the fuck over in the Batmobile... And we are just told by some of the documentation that it's merely gently electrocuting them out of the way. That's questionable. Also, how does he know that none of the people he hits with his car have pacemakers? Uh, he's Batman. He's the best at knowing whether people have pacemakers, I assume. Uh, iffy. That's actually one of the things I really like about the PlayStation 4 Spider-Man game, which I really like in most, but not all, because of its treatment of police ways. Uh... They take great pains to show that Spider-Man does not, in fact, ever kill anyone. Like, you'll punch somebody 100 feet off a building, and if you go to the other side of the building, they're just webbed to it about a story down. Aw, good work, Spider-Man. That's why we like you. <laughs> it's delightful. Anyway, after Sink and uh, Chamber murder, like, basically 100 people, uh, the Little Pink Elves and their happy medieval font offer to take them home. And that brings us to Generation X number 9, someplace other than here. Sure is. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Tom Grummet, inked by Mark Buckingham and Al Milgram, colored by Steve Buccolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. I kind of like Tom Grummet's fill-in art here. It's still no Chris Bocello work, but it's got a nice soft, liquidish, slightly exaggerated feel that I think fits the book. He also draws a really great skin. I love that skin is always frowning and has a very pointy nose and chin. Yeah, he's he's got that Pacello-esque cartooniness, and I think Buckingham's inks help a lot with that as well. Totally. I have a question, though, that, that, that goes back to the cover. Because I can clearly identify Chamber on the cover. I, I see Jono, but is the person with him supposed to be Penance, a leprechaun, or Penance as a leprechaun. I don't know, but I will say that if Penance was a leprechaun, then her cereal would not be Lucky Charms. It would be Captain Crunch, because that stuff will totally cut the shit out of the roof of your mouth. Okay. Anyway, what happens in this issue? Well, we get one of the genuinely good bits of this arc, and that consists of Skin fucking with the dragon and basically annoying it into eventual defeat or giving penance an opening to just defeat it because he so persistently thwarts it just by being there and being kind of obnoxious i really appreciate how blasé he is about the whole thing like at one point he realizes that his bl strategy of bluster is not gonna work so much for the macho armado riff i'm gonna go get a sword or something Skin is really fun. I don't remember liking him as much back in the day as I as I do on this read through of Gen X. Oh yeah, he is a delight. I also really like the panel at the end of this scene as Penance looks mischievous and just pokes a single claw into the dragon's butt. That's the only part of their conflict we see, which is probably for the best because I'm sure she turns him into dragon sashimi. 
Yeah, she is pretty much a human mandoline. Oh, man. I, I know a lot of people, you included, who have done some damage to themselves with those things. But it slices potatoes so nicely. Yeah, but it also slices thumbs. Uh, I mean, parts of them sometimes grow back. <laughs> anyway, so this issue kind of explains what's going on. Like, the elves who are maybe leprechauns and who are colored like fairies take Chamber and Sink back to their village. But, like, Eamon refers to the elves as Clan O'Donnell, and there never was a Clan O'Donnell because O'Donnell was just Eamon's last name, and the leprechauns were just the families, and the leprechauns were definitely not related to Eamon as far as I know, and these guys look totally different, and they're all pink anyway, and what, what, the, what the hell? This is where you just stop stop trying and lean into it and just kind of like, sure, they're leprechauns, they're elves, they're O'Donnells. One of them's probably Chris O'Donnell. He gets to drive the Batmobile. And, it, and you, just, you just kind of dive headfirst. But I can't stop thinking about all the things that don't make sense. Like, why did Cassidy Keep get teleported into this dimension in the first place? I mean... I guess Grand Dame could have brought it here because she needed help fixing the glamour machine, or she just needed slave labor from the leprechauns of Cassidy Keep to run the glamour machine. But if that's the case, why did she wait 300 years after the glamour machine broke? Why didn't she do this way before? Miles, nothing in this arc is ever adequately explained, ever. Stuff just happens. Speaking of which, apparently the leprechauns or elves or whatever the fuck they are, are also being oppressed by the fairies, trolls, and or dragon. Um, they are expected to function as slave labor and run the glamour machine. So I think, I think your take on it is, is plausible. Maybe she's, maybe the other dimension doesn't really line up spatially and she was just sort of wandering around for a couple hundred years trying to find a source of cheap, tiny labor. I mean, we know she wasn't expecting Generation X to show up because she painted the tapestry of, of them helping her the morning before they showed up. So maybe that part was accidental, but her stealing Cassidy Keep was, was deliberate. Yeah, maybe it is a grand conjunction kind of thing, except instead of the Skeksis and the Mystics turning into a unified, glowy species, it's that a castle teleports into a weird dimension. Yeah, I, I give up. This is This is where... I just kind of give up. But I feel like, Jay, if we give up now, Scott Lobdell has won. So be it. Look, there are battles that are worth fighting. There are battles you want to engage in. And then there are battles where you look around and you realize that what you're fighting over, the hill you're about to die on, is, is just solid shit and pixies. That's it, just just layers. Oh man, like the ruins of a long-dead civilization that anthropologists will later discover and ask the question that will plague them for centuries. Was Eamon O'Donnell a motherfucking leprechaun? This is so upsetting. Anyway, they all fix it up and Chamber uses his powers to repower the glamour machine and everything's fine and everybody goes home, I guess? They don't actually go home in the issue, and it does not address the question of how fixing the glamour machine will get them home or whether it'll even get them home. So I was sort of expecting them to still be there when the next issue started, but they weren't, so I guess they got home. As with so many other aspects of this arc, we'll probably never know. God damn it. So leprechauns come back in, in 
mainstream Marvel and some other world stuff. But the best use of the Leprechauns of Cassidy Keep, and as far as I know, the only time that they've appeared in comics since this arc is in Uncanny X-Men First Class number eight, which is delightful. It is an old school murder mystery. But among the Leprechauns of Cassidy Keep with with um, with Banshee as the detective. I love everything about what you just said. That sounds like the best way to wash the taste of this baffling arc out of our mouths. Oh, it is. It is utterly delightful. That's a good series in general. Really, both of the first class series are. Um, but that issue is is charming as hell. Highly, highly recommend. It's also on Marvel Unlimited if you want to look it up. I'm going to do that after we record. Anyway, we clearly have had a lot of questions about a lot of things during this arc. Let's look at some questions that we can actually answer. Earl of Flakes asks on Tumblr, have Cable or Rachel Summers slash Gray ever had on-page conversations with their Uncle Havoc? They both have, at least in passing, but for Rachel at least, what you're going to want to dig up is X-Men Unlimited Volume 2, Number 11, which has a whole story about Rachel and Alex going out for pizza and and discussing family stuff, and is also the source of a panel that I regularly use on social media in which Tavik is, is sort of awkwardly saying, that's what alternate timeline uncles are for, right? Nice. Yeah, it's a really lovely quiet issue, and it's a it's it's a it's a great snapshot piece for both characters. As far as Havoc and Cable, I mean there was that one time in Executioner's song where there where they were the only two people who could get through Strife's big genetic barrier on the moon, but there wasn't a lot of time for conversation there. And I was thinking, okay, they were both in the Uncanny Avengers book, but have it quit before Cable joined. I'm sure we're missing something. I'm sure there have been at least one or two great conversations between Havoc and Cable over the years. I can't really think of any right now. Via email, Rebecca wrote in to ask, Is Kid Apocalypse an external? Oh, geez, that's a really good question, because we know that Apocalypse is one of the externals. So I, I guess he'd have to be, right? I guess? I mean, okay, let's let's break this down. Kid Apocalypse, Evan Sabanur, a character we both love a great deal, he's a clone of the child Apocalypse that Phantom X killed at the beginning of Uncanny X-Force. We know that that child Apocalypse was just Apocalypse, resurrected, a straight-up resurrection of the original. So we can obviously agree that when Apocalypse is resurrected, he stays an external because he's been resurrected a bunch of times. But would that carry over to a clone? Well, one of the questions that would raise is whether being an external is is genetic, whether it's it's a genetic status or it's something else. And I mean, I think what we've seen implies the latter just because Sam Guthrie is or at least was supposed to have been an external. Right. Like, it's not passed down the same way the mutant gene is. It seems more of a destiny mystical kind of dealy. Yeah, exactly. So in that case, you could have one person be an external and their clone not be. I guess so. I mean, we know the externals are really obsessed with finding their next member, and if they could just make a next member, that seems way more straightforward. But get this, we also know that the externals' power is finite. It's kind of like the Phoenix Five. When one of the externals dies the external who killed that person gains their power. Or possibly the power flows into all the other externals equally. I don't really remember. So they're just Highlanders? 
Kind of. But does that mean that when Evan was cloned, he yoinked away a fraction of each other external's power? Like, wouldn't they be pissed about that? And furthermore, wouldn't that have been the best way for Sinister to defeat his old boss, Apocalypse? He could have just cloned Apocalypse like a hundred times and thus divided all the external power among a whole bunch of clones, and then Apocalypse would suck and Sinister could just push him over. I mean, that seems way easier than the whole rigmarole of engineering cables, Berth. And it would have had the further benefit of achieving one of Sinister's other, you know, tangential goals, which is just fucking nonstop with Gambit. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, what with the whole external thing? I guess what it comes down to, though, is that there's the external portion of Apocalypse's continuity, and there's the everything else portion of Apocalypse's continuity, and nary the two shall meet. Yeah, ultimately what it means to be an external and how that status is achieved is vague enough that we can't answer this one conclusively. We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. I'll turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator, who may or may not be a leprechaun. Remember when things seemed simple, Steve Chernikoff? When continuity meant something... When crossovers were a big deal that happened only once in a very long while, not the engines propelling any grinding, gradual movement of the multiverse. Remember when you learned about new characters from trading cards, and sometimes Josiah Roberts just kind of showed up and made everything worse? What wouldn't you give to go back to those days? Ha, no, that's actually a trick question. It doesn't really matter how much you'd trade, because there is no going back. Only forward, eternally, into convolution and intricate event-based marketing, and the lingering suspicion that it's all your fault. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. We don't think Matt's a leprechaun, but it's hard to say. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for leprechaun companions to every episode. Our show is 100% possible leprechaun supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's Hawk Talk, followed by our giant size holiday special. Assuming, of course, that we survive the holidays. And the leprechauns. Fucking leprechauns. Leprechauns.